Romans chapter 5 this morning, starting a new chapter once again. We're working our way through Paul's methodical approach to the gospel, looking at the details as he unfolds the plan of God to reconcile fallen, sinful human beings to himself. Mankind is the object of God's wrath. Paul made that clear in the first three chapters of the letter to the church at Rome. We are all under condemnation. We are all destined for judgment. There is no one who is exempt from that, he told us. As Paul went through the last half of chapter 1 into chapter 2, then down through verse 20 of chapter 3, we were left with the understanding that not a single one of us could measure up to the righteousness of God. Not a single one of us was worthy of anything but eternal judgment for our sins and our, and our rejection of God. This is true of every single person who has ever lived. By the time we got to verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul had shown us that we were at rock bottom. We were completely without hope. But then we got to verse 21 of chapter 3, and Paul began to shine the light on where hope actually lives, where it comes from. It doesn't live in us. It doesn't come from anything that we do. But hope can only be found in God and in his provision for us. Remember back what he told us in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Our righteousness doesn't exist. It's not real when we look at anything that we might have. We might see ourselves as righteous, but what we see as righteous deeds are like filthy rags when compared to God's righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that had to be revealed, that had to be provided for any of us to have any hope at all. And the righteousness of God comes about how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God is revealed, that God's righteousness can be credited to us. Because that's truly what we need. It's kind of like going out into the world and trying to pay for things with Monopoly money. Everybody knows what Monopoly money is, right? Sometimes I date myself or I show my age when I use these examples. But trying to pay for things in the world with Monopoly money, right? Having thick stacks of cash in our pockets, seeing ourselves as rich, thinking that we're really something because we have all this money. But in reality, what are we doing? We're just fooling ourselves. We go out into the real world with thick stacks of monopoly money, and that does us absolutely no good. That's what our righteousness is like when compared to the eternal plans of God. The righteousness of God, that's, that's real. That's true righteousness. That's, that's like having real dollar bills in our pockets that are actually worth something. That's how our righteousness compares to God's righteousness. We can't do anything with our own righteousness. We take our monopoly money righteousness and we try to pay off our debts with God. We try to say, see, I have all this money and what are we doing? We're fooling ourselves by thinking that we have anything. It doesn't work that way. If we don't have the righteousness of God, then we don't really have anything. So that's really the transition here, when we, that we get to verse 21 of chapter 3. If our own righteousness is nothing, not true righteousness at all, then how can anyone ever measure up to the righteousness of God? How could anyone ever escape from God's wrath? How could anyone ever escape from his judgment? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul presented starting um, in that verse, verse 21 of chapter 3, and he continued on with that through the end of the chapter and then through chapter 4 and now even as we get to chapter 5 he's going to be continuing on with it in the very first phrase of chapter 5 therefore having been justified by faith justified is the word that we've talked about before right being credited with righteousness that's entirely what we're talking about here we are credited with the righteousness of God by faith and that is the only way that we can be justified, by faith and by faith alone. Throughout the end of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, that's been Paul's point. Justification is by faith. Not in what we do 
uh, it's not in what we do. There's nothing that we can do. Again, see chapters 1 through 3 for that. But only by believing in what God has done through sending his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for sins, can anyone be justified. And that was the entire point of the example of Abraham that he used throughout chapter 4. Abraham was justified by faith. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and God credited it, that to him as righteousness. What about circumcision? Did that play a role in Abraham's justification? No. Abraham was circumcised many, many years after he was justified. What about the law? Did the law play any role in Abraham's justification? No. Abraham died 500 years before the law was even given. Paul's reasoning in using Abraham as an example is is precisely to show that no works of the law or of anything else could ever play a part in a person's justification. Because the example of Abraham shows that it's by faith and faith alone that a person is justified. Justification is by faith. As we come to the end of chapter 4, we saw the conclusion that Paul had from this example. If you look at verse 22 of chapter 4, he said, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. And he's talking about Abraham's faith there. That was Paul reiterating what he'd been talking about since since verse 3 of that chapter. And then he goes on and says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. Here, Paul's drawing the correlation between Abraham and us, between what was required for Abraham and what is required for anyone else who believes. For those who are also credited with righteousness like Abraham was. Okay, so how were we credited with it today? Go on in verse 24. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God gave Abraham a promise, right? We talked about that. We promised him land, his descendants, promised him blessings. And Abraham believed him. He believed in that promise that God gave him. Now today, we understand more about what God was promising Abraham. We don't believe something different. We believe in what comes out of that promise, what came out of that promise to Abraham. Jesus Christ came through the line of Abraham. He came as a part of that promise that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The same problem, the same promise has been fleshed out. More has been revealed to it. It hasn't been changed or altered in any way, but it has been shown that what Abraham believed is ultimately being accomplished through Jesus Christ and in what he accomplished on the cross for our sins. Now, as we get all of that straight in our minds, have all of that at the forefront of our thinking, now we come to chapter 5, where Paul is going to go further here. And we're going to see some what now information provided to us. He's not quite done with going back to past information. We'll see him go back to some of that in in, uh, verse 6 and following. But the initial five verses of that start this chapter, we're going to see some information on what is true of those who have been justified, those who have believed. We need to keep in mind, as Paul goes through this, his entire letter here, really, he goes through some back and forth with his arguments. Every every step of the way here, he's building, he's progressing on what he's talked about before. So sometimes he goes back and forth, showing that transition from what we were to what we went through, even to what we are now. So there's a lot of back and forth in in what we're working our way through here, but through it all, we're going to get a fuller understanding of what the gospel message is all about. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 5, and what do we see? He starts off, therefore, having been justified by faith. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who have been justified by faith, right? Those that have put their faith and trust in Christ. So these are the ones who have come through in the likeness of Abraham, those who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Those who have placed their faith and trust in the gospel and have had the righteousness of God revealed to them, experiencing the saving power of the gospel that was introduced to us way back in verse 16 of chapter 1. 
It's like bursting through a wall. Does everybody here remember the Kool-Aid man? If I use the the term Kool-Aid man, you understand what I'm saying? Some of you might, some of you might not. The Kool-Aid man would come in, there'd be a brick wall, and then all of a sudden, boom, the Kool-Aid man would come bursting through it, right? I hope I don't really have to explain this to you, but if I do, that's, that's what it was, right? It comes bursting through the wall. Well, these ungodly, unsaved, lost-in-their-sins people have now believed. They've placed their faith in Christ's work on the cross and have now become justified, right? They've burst through a wall, you could say. Now, what's on the other side of that wall? What are they bursting through into? What does this mean for those who have believed? What's the difference between what was true before and what is true now? That's what Paul is going to show us here uh, at the beginning of chapter 5. And and what we'll see is that justification isn't something that happens and then nothing changes. Nothing is different. Bursting through the wall just to find that it's the same on one side as the other, that's not what happens for the believer. Justification is just the beginning of the new life for the believer in Jesus Christ. And where that new life begins is what Paul says next in the verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We need to understand what this word peace means because there's a couple different ways that we think about peace. And oftentimes we see this as the wrong one of them. When we think of peace, we often think of it as having a peaceful feeling. Right? We might say, oh, I'm at peace with my decision or with my situation. Right? Oh, I just I have that peaceful feeling. Right? That's what we're saying when we say that. Right? Well, I'm at peace with my decision. We're saying that I have a good feeling about something or it doesn't cause me worry or concern. But that's not what Paul's really saying here. This is the other kind of peace. This is the peace in the sense that we're talking about war and peace. Right? We understand the difference between being in a position of war or animosity and being in a position of peace. We have peace with those who are on our same side, right? If, we're in, if we have animosity, you're in a, in a war, you have your allies, and you're at peace with your allies, but you're not with peace with those that are on the other side. So what Paul is saying here is that having been justified, having been credited with the righteousness of God, we have gone from being on the other side, the animosity side, the enemy side, to being on the friendly side, the peaceful side. What did we see when we talked about the other side, the sinful, lost, ungodly humanity side of chapter 1 and following? God's wrath was upon us, right? Look back all the way at verse 18 of chapter 1, the verse that launched us into this whole discussion on fallen man. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What were we before? Back before we burst through the wall. We were under the wrath of God. That was our previous standing. What all men who have not believed, that's where they are. That's what they stand in. They don't believe they are under God's wrath. That's animosity with God. And all throughout the rest of the chapter, God gave them over to their sins because man rejected God. We, before we were saved, we rejected God. We were under his wrath. We were given over to our sins. We were storing up wrath for ourselves. We were unrighteous. We were not looking for God. We were totally turned away from him. And he gave us over to our sins, being the objects of his wrath. That was not peace. That was not a peaceful situation that we had with God. Look over with me the book of Ephesians, second chapter of Ephesians. Paul presents this here as well, a very lot more condensed version of it. But this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this. Second chapter of Ephesians. It's a passage we're all familiar with. Paul talks about what we were like prior to our salvation, before we believed in the cross of Christ. But look at the verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. This is where we came from. This is what we were. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, even as the rest. This is not the picture of someone who's at peace with God. We were dead in our sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We were sons of disobedience. We were indulging in our own desires. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Right along with everyone else, we were under the wrath of God. And that is what we were. Paul presents it here much more succinctly than in Romans, but it's the same thing. and It's that same situation. And what does he say broke us through the wall here? Verse 4, but God, if you don't have those words circled, those should be circled in your Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of his love, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that's what he did. He did this freely for us. But how did he accomplish it? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Same thing that we're seeing here in Romans. By grace, through faith, we were taken from animosity with God, from being the objects of his wrath, and we were moved over to the other side, the side of peace with God. We are now in a state of peace with God if we have placed our faith in his son in the gospel. Come back to Romans 5. Now along with that, does that mean that we can have a feeling of peace, right? That, that we have the peace of God? Well, absolutely. That does come along with it. But I don't want you to get the idea that that's primarily what Paul's talking about here. Because there are people out there who are still lost in their sins that claim they have peace with God. Because they've dulled themselves in their sins, right? They've, 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 they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So this isn't talking about feelings. This is talking about a position. It's a peaceful, not a peaceful feeling, it's a peaceful state, a peaceful position that we are now in with God. We are no longer his enemies. We are now at peace with him. We've moved over to his side of the battle, if you will. But for now, keep that in mind, that we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his Son. And that's how Paul follows through with this in verse 2. He says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's through Jesus Christ that we obtain our introduction, or really our access, into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. But before we, talked about, before we talk about grace, note, note what he says here. He says, our access into it is by what? Again, faith. He mentions it again. Faith. Since we started in this latest section that we're in, talking about justification, Paul has used this word 20 times. 20 times in the last chapter and a half, he's used the word faith. I don't want you to miss this because this is vitally important as to what Paul is conveying here and has been conveying in this entire section. And I'm going to read us his uses of it since he started talking about it in verse 21 of chapter 3. He said in verse 22 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Verse 26, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, by a law of faith. Verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith. Verse 30, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Verse 31, do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Now we move into chapter 4. That was just chapter 3. Chapter 4. Verse 5, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Verse 9, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 11, circumcision, circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Verse 12, he who followed, who, sorry, he, it's already been a long morning. Verse 12, who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. Verse 13, through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. Verse 16, this reason it is by faith. And then later in the verse he says, also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith. Verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And then we have the two verses that we've looked at already today. Justified by faith in verse 1 and obtained our introduction by faith in verse 2. And we can add in seven more times that he uses the word believe, believes, or believed, which is really the same word, just the verb form of it. So what does this show us? Faith is important, right? Do you think that's what Paul is trying to convey here? Do you think that as we come through this section of the letter, he wants to get across a particular point about faith? Yes, he does. I bring this up here because at this point, we've broken through that wall, right? The Kool-Aid man wall. This time that he uses the word here in verse 2 is really the last time that he'll use this word until we get to chapter 9. He doesn't use it again. There's one time in verse 6, but he's not even really talking about saving faith. Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 6. But that's not even really talking about saving faith when he uses it. So since he stops talking about it, does that mean it's no longer important? No, not at all. He's already established the importance of faith. He has solidified the role that faith plays in justification. We just looked at it. Faith, 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 faith. We are to have the fact that a person is justified by faith, firmly implanted in our minds by this point. And now, from here on out, we can move on into the rest of what he wants to talk about. So what does he say? Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. Having believed, having placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and we understand that's what our faith is in, right? It's not faith for faith's sake. We've talked about that before. People say, I'm a person of faith. That means nothing unless you're talking about what you have faith in. If it's not faith in Jesus Christ and in the work that he accomplished on the cross, then it means nothing. Right? So our faith is in what? It's in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf on the cross. Now, where does that put us? He says, into this grace in which we stand. Now we see grace here. And we've talked about grace before. In chapter 3, verse 24, we saw it there. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification is a gift by his grace, we saw there. You say, well, I thought it was by faith. Well, yes, it is by faith. But the fact that God has provided his righteousness to anyone is an unmerited, undeserved, unobligated gift that he has given to us. The mere fact that we can be justified at all, that we can be credited with righteousness, is a gift on his part. We've talked about it already, but it bears repeating. God did not have to allow anyone to be saved. He was under no obligation to do that. I mean, you look at the angels, right? What happens to an angel when they sin? There's no redemption for angels. Angels are done when they sin. An angel is cast out. God didn't provide redemption for angels. Now, for mankind, he would have been absolutely just in allowing us to stand condemned before him for all eternity and to die in our own sins. He did not have to provide redemption for us. He didn't have to save a single one of us, but he did. And if we get further into the chapter, we'll explore that further, talking about death and sin, talking about our state before him, what we were were in relation to him prior to him providing redemption. And it's not a pretty picture. 
It's not a picture of poor lost souls who just needed a break. Oh, we've, we feel so bad for them. No. It's much more disgusting and uglier than that, of what we were in, the position we were in. But by his grace, he did provide salvation. He did provide redemption. He did provide this entire justification process that Paul has been talking about and allows us to burst through the wall in order to be reconciled to him. So the grace of God is vitally important to our new life in Christ. It's the only way that we could have any kind of relationship with him. But that's really just the beginning of what Paul is getting at here in verse 2. Because he's talking about this grace in which we stand. This is grace that is current, not simply at a point in time, although it started at a point in time, but it's grace that continues on in the life of the believer. You don't get into this grace in any way uh, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It's part and parcel with what you can look at as the salvation package, right? When you're saved, there's, there's a... There's a there's many different things that come with the package, quote-unquote, of salvation. Part of what is true for us now. When we are justified, we stand before him justified for all eternity. We accept the gift of his grace, and that doesn't end. There is no end to his grace. We stand in it. We exist now in the grace of God. Apostle Peter, in his second letter, He's writing his letter to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. I'm just going to read you the first, just his introduction to his second letter. Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's the type of thing that we're talking about here. Through faith in Christ, saving faith, faith that results in justification, God doesn't just save us and then simply let us go on our merry way. Say, okay, well, good luck. I hope things go well for you out there. No, we now stand in the grace of God. He provides for us all that we need, all that pertains to life and godliness, Peter says. Now, this isn't health and wealth. Right? We'll see in a few minutes that we're not promised easy living, but God has saved us by his grace, and it's by his grace that he keeps us. Nothing can ever change that. That's the position that we are now in, having been justified. Now, as a result of that, what does that mean? Well, look at the end of verse 2. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. This is ultimately where we will end up, where he will take us. This is where our hope lies. We have past, present, and future presented here in, these, in, in just this small section that we've looked at so far. Verse 1 having been justified, taken from the pool of ungodly, unrighteous humanity, right? That's what we were taken from. We, what we were previously, that was our past, right? Being credited with righteousness. Then through that access by faith, we are at peace with God, and we now stand in his grace. That's where we are currently. We exist now in the present at peace with God in the grace of God. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. This is where we're going. This is the future. The word for exalt here is a word that can mean rejoice, boast, glory. It has a few different definitions. But the idea behind it is that we have a confidence mixed with joy. Or you could, we could call it confident rejoicing. It's anxious anticipation that we have in what is to come. And what is to come? The glory of God. The glory of God, he says. Now, this is significant that he uses this phrase again. Why? Because earlier, Paul told us that we fall short of God's glory, didn't he? Back in verse 23 of, of chapter, uh, chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we were, wasn't it? We were short of his glory, but now 
As those who have been justified, you see our situation has changed. God has changed our situation. Now we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now, kind of like we talked about with peace, hope is one of those words that we, we need to get it firm in our minds as well. We have different ways of thinking about hope as well. Kind of like we, yeah, kind of like I mentioned with peace. We shouldn't think of this hope as in, boy, I sure hope that happens. Right? Sometimes that's our thought when we see the word hope. I, I, hope, them, I hope the Huskers can beat Michigan this year. Or a few years ago, people were saying, I hope that the new Star Wars movies don't stink too bad. But that type of hope, there's not a lot of confidence behind that hope, right? But this hope here, there is confidence in this. There is assurance in this. Because we know that this is where we are headed, that this is what's in store for us. Now here, he doesn't say much about it, but later on in Romans, we get a little more information about it. Turn over with me to chapter 8, and we'll get to chapter 8 in due time, but we'll take a little sneak peek ahead. Go down to, in verses 28 to 30, Paul is presenting this we've talked about it before, this unbreakable chain of salvation, the details of which we'll look at when, when we get to Romans 8. But we'll break into this chain in verse 3. These are all things that are true of anyone who is saved, that the unbreakable chain. Well, you get down to verse 30, and he says, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. And we're seeing here the tail end of the chain. The predestined are called, the called are justified, the justified are glorified. There is no one who is saved outside of this process, outside of these elements of this chain. And the end of the chain is the transformation that we are looking forward to, the time when we will receive glorified bodies. That is the hope that we have. That is what we are looking forward to, that we are anxiously awaiting someday. Look at one more passage. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. We'll look at this uh, real quick. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3 uh, that having been raised up, in verse 1 he says, having been raised up with Christ, they are now to seek the things above where Christ is, telling them, Then in verse 2, that they are to set their minds on the things above, not on things that are on earth, right? They're to have a more of a vertical focus rather than a horizontal focus on the things down here. But now at verse 3, we see why they are to do that. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Having died with Christ, we are now identified with him. Paul will talk about this when we get to chapter 6 of Romans. But this is what is true of us today. Now in verse 4, we see where we're going. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's the glory that we're talking about, glorified with Christ. John makes mention of this as well, 1 John chapter 3. I'll just read this verse. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Once again, it's that same idea. There's that same hope, that same promise for what lies ahead. Glory, being like Christ in glory. Now, it doesn't mean that we will be God or be gods or anything like that. He's not talking about divinity, but we will be given glorified bodies. We will be given bodies that will be perfect and complete and untainted by sin. Because that's really where things are ultimately fixed for us, where the end of the package that I mentioned earlier is fully and finally completed. We were tainted and corrupted by sin. We'll get to that discussion later on. In chapter 5, see how that came about in the world. But because of our sin, we fell short of God's glory. But now, having been justified, we exult in the hope that we now have in the glory of God. When we we will be raised up with him fully and finally in every way. So back in Romans 5, this is what we anxiously await. That we have that confident rejoicing in. That we put our hope in. Now, we're not there yet, right? 
Paul here gives us that picture, right? We are, we are waiting for that day. We are confident that that day will come. We are anxiously awaiting that day. But in the very next verse, we get a reminder that we're not there yet. We are not yet in glory. Look at what he says in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Well, there's a buzzkill, isn't it? Here's Paul talking about justification before God, having been brought into peace with God, standing in God's grace, rejoicing in the hope that we have when we will be glorified with him. And now we're going to talk about tribulations. It's a stark reminder of what? That we're not there yet. We have been justified, but we are not yet glorified. It's as good as done. It's a sure thing for us, but we haven't yet been removed from this world. We still exist here. We still live here. We are still called to serve and to function here. And along with that, there will be tribulations for us. That is a fact. What a bummer, right? I mean, that's not what the health and wealth guys preach, is it? Yeah, you listen to those guys, and everything's going to get better. And if you just do it right, everything gets better, and you get wealthy, and you don't have any tribulations. That's not what the Bible says. What's this about tribulations? The word for tribulations is a word that means pressure, uh, which is exactly what tribulations or trials or sufferings or whatever your translation might say there. It's the same type of thing. That's what this feels like. It's pressure. It's like pressing olives or, or pressing something to make, uh, turn it into something. Pressing carbon to make a diamond, that kind of thing. It's that pressure that threatens to crush us at times. What are they? Well, I think here in, in Paul's context, they can really be anything. It could be health issues. It could be persecution. It could be money issues. They're, these things are not the same for every believer, but they're the things that God allows us to go through. Sometimes they are greater than others. For some people, they are greater than others. I don't know that we can really compare one person's trials or tribulations to another person's trials or tribulations. One person may have, have problems where they have a, a constant pain, constant back pain. Another one might be dying from an incurable disease. I've had concerns about things that my kids have gone through in the same week that I sat with someone whose child had just died. How does that compare? How does what I, my concerns for my child compare to what they were going through? There is no comparison. That doesn't compare. But the Lord allows trials to come upon us, even upon those who have believed in him, trusted in him, become justified through faith in him. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. We sometimes think that trials mean that we've done something wrong, right? We, we think, oh, something, this bad thing has come upon me. What did I do wrong? Well, look at Job, right? We just studied Job. Job was a godly man. Job was a man who believed in God. And yet, did Job have trials? Yeah. You could say Job had some trials. Trials do not necessarily mean that we've done something wrong. In John chapter 16... This is Jesus' last night before his crucifixion, where he's talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for what's to come. And he looked down at the very last verse, verse 33 of John 16, where he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulations. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Tribulations, there's our word. That's the same word that Paul uses. What's Jesus telling them here? These trials, this pressure, it's going to come. In the world, you're going to have these tribulations. There is no, well, now you belong to me, and I'm going to keep you away from all the trouble. Sorry, but that's not what he tells them. Jesus even says here, I have overcome the world. And you think about that, and you think, well, if you've overcome the world, couldn't you keep us from away from these trials, these tribulations? Again, no, that's not where it goes. We are going to go through trials. There isn't a way to avoid, or, or, this isn't a way to avoid the trials, but it's what happens when we go through the trials. And that's what Paul is going to show us as we come back to Romans chapter 5. Now, before we see what happens here, note what it says here about these tribulations. He says, We exult 
in these tribulations. That's the same word that he just used in the previous verse. We exult in hope of the glory of God. That's confident rejoicing once again. How does that work? How can we do both? It's easy to see how we can rejoice in the glory that awaits us, right? That one makes sense to us. But how do we confidently rejoice in a trial, in something seemingly catastrophic that might occur in our life? And keep in mind, it's not rejoicing in spite of our tribulations, but it's rejoicing in our tribulations. We rejoice or exult in the tribulations themselves is what he's saying here. So why would we do that? Well, that's what we're going to see next. There is a process that our tribulations take us through, what they accomplish in us. And God uses these things in our lives to mature us, to sanctify us. Paul will get to the sanctification process a little later in the book, but here we get a glimpse of it. We can say it's a first taste of it. Um, I don't know if we have... Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think we'll have time. I want to show you what Paul says about trials, tribulations here in 2 Corinthians 4. Here in this chapter, Paul is talking about his own ministry of sharing the gospel. And he's talking about his ministry. And he's talking about how, how it is that he can continue to preach even in light of the trials that he's had to go through, the adversity that he went through. And he mentions in verse 8, being afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing. But look down in verse 16. Even in the face of trials, difficulties, the tribulations that come in life, and in his own ministry, Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but, through our out, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary... Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And you see there in verse 17, the momentary light affliction. Light affliction. That's our word for tribulations. That's what Paul is saying about these tribulations and all that Paul has gone through in his ministry. And you, and you look at the details. He provides a lot of the details of what he went through in the book of 2 Corinthians. And they're not things that any of us would label as light. And you think, how would he consider them light afflictions? Because of what that affliction does in him. It produces an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, he says. When you compare the trials that you go through with the glory that the trials produce in us and that awaits us, there is no comparison. In chapter 8 of Romans, he's going to say the same thing again. Verse 18 of chapter 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So back in Romans 5, verse 3, that's where he's taking us here in this discussion as well. So we see what he says next in the middle of verse 3. He says, Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Here's the beginning of this process. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And you see, he starts through that process. Tribulation, that pressure, produces a stick-to-it type of attitude, that perseverance. I mean, I think the best example we can think of this as is with athletes, right? People that train for difficult things. It's not an easy thing for an athlete to get to an elite level, right? We we like watching athletes, we like watching, you know, watch football or gymnastics or whatever, and you see these people doing amazing things, and you think, you know, that was not something that just came naturally to them. That was a lot of hard work, that was a lot of failure, pain, all of that that produced that type of uh, ability in them, and they had to have perseverance, but in order to get to that level, they needed to stick to it, they needed to persevere. They needed to go through that difficult period of training and producing an ability for them to be able to do what it is that they do. Now, of course, every analogy breaks down, right? An, a- an athlete can always quit. Few people have that same type of perseverance as elite athletes do. So if you don't have it, oftentimes you're done. It's one of the reasons why I'm not an elite athlete. I didn't want to keep putting up with that. But with a trial, it's a little bit different. There's no choice, right? You're going to go through the trial. 
you get a debilitating disease or you go through some type of persecution, you're going to go through that. There's really not a point where you can say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'd, I'd just rather not have this disease anymore. I'd rather not have my child go through this anymore. That really isn't an option with that. But for the believer, we know that we can take comfort and even rejoice in what that trial is doing in our lives. And he uses the word knowing here, knowing that this does produce perseverance in our lives. And that's important to note as well. This is not, again, a feeling. It's not an opinion on how it works for some people. Paul says we know that this is what happens. This is the knowledge that we have through God's word that this is what God does for us in these situations, why we go through these things. And this is wrapped into what we saw before. This is all part of the grace, his unmerited gift that we stand in as those who have been justified by faith. But he doesn't stop there. There's more. There's not just the perseverance. There's not just that ability to keep going through it. But then there's proven character. He says in verse 4, in perseverance, proven character. There is an outcome or a result to perseverance as well. And that is this proven character. Now, this is a word that simply means proof. It's really just the word proof. The idea being proven through a process or a test. It was used for the proof of metals, right? You put, you put metal under, under flame or put it in fire, you heat it up and, and melt it, and you can separate out impurities of it so that in the end, once you've scraped off all the garbage that had gotten into it, you've got the pure metal. And we can all point to some type of trial in our life, see this sort of process. But, you know, I see some people that go through trials and and you're just left amazed, dumbfounded, if you would, at the things that they are actually able to go through. I sometimes ask myself, how can anyone go through that? Would I be able to go through that same type of trial that, that that person's gone through? But even more, I see people go through these things and they never cease to give praise to God for what's going on in their lives or even giving him praise for the trial in their life. And that's really what we're talking about here. They have a trial. They don't fold under the pressure. They don't curse God for allowing bad things to happen to them. But in the trial, God's grace abounds to them and gives them that ability to stay under that pressure. And that pressure produces in them proves in them a character that shows that they truly belong to him. And as one with that proof in their life, what is the outcome of that? Hope, he says at the end of verse 4, and proven character, hope. We come full circle, right? Back to hope. Back in verse 2, we had the hope in the glory of God when then trials come into our life. Trials produce perseverance. Perseverance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope, even more hope, greater hope. Through trials, God produces in us even greater hope than we had in the first place. This is the process that he uses in our lives to refine and mature us. I sat with a friend of mine who was going through treatment for brain cancer a few years ago. And he would tell me how what he was going through provided him with an even greater appreciation on what God was doing in his life. I mean, he was a strong believer before that, but but you go through something like that and he had a renewed perspective on how important it was to be seeking out God during that time, spending time in prayer, spending time in the word. Trials do that for us, don't they? They can either harden us Or they can give a person a better appreciation for what God is doing in their life and will do in their life. For the believer, the process gives us that greater appreciation for God and a greater appreciation for the hope that we are looking forward to as we anticipate the return of the Lord. Verse 5. We'll end here for the week. But in verse uh, 5, we see he goes on with this hope again. It says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Hope doesn't disappoint. Again, this is the specific type of hope that he's talking about. This is the fixed hope that we have that is a result of what God is going to do in us. It's that hope that doesn't disappoint. 
Will the Huskers beat Michigan this year? I hope so. But that's a hope that can disappoint. That's not the hope that we're talking about. This hope that we have with our standing in the grace of God does not disappoint. This is a sure thing. It is guaranteed. Why? Why can I say that? How do I know that it's guaranteed? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul hasn't said much about the Holy Spirit to this point in the letter. There was one reference to him back in chapter 2, but that's really it so far. Why? Because until one places their faith and trust in the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit really hasn't come into their life. The entire plan of salvation, God's love that he has shown through the gift of grace that he has provided in his son has not come upon them, not in any effectual saving way. The general love of God, sure, right? God gives the entire world his blessings, right? Rain and sunshine and things like that. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is the love of God where he has come upon you in his spirit and he has made you his very own. All that he has given us in grace is a byproduct of this love for us. He does it all in love. How do we know that this hope is guaranteed? The Holy Spirit comes upon us. He seals us when we are justified. He is our guarantee of all the future promises of God. We'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 8. But if God is going to send his spirit upon us, seal us in this way, pour out his love to us in his plan for salvation, then we can rest assured knowing that we will, or that he will complete us someday. He will finish what he started by justifying us in the first place. It's important to note that as we are justified, this is, this is all that we receive from God. There's abundance of grace. There's peace, the love of God, hope. All these things are now what's on the other side of that wall. There is assurance in our lives that comes not only through the way in which God works in us, but in the perseverance and proven character that is a result of trials and hardships in our life. This is God's plan. This is what is true for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation. Faith, keep in mind, that is the linchpin here. That is the pivot point. It all hinges on faith. If someone doesn't have faith, doesn't believe in the gospel, received God's righteousness through faith, they don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They don't have peace with God. They are not standing in the grace of God, and they have no hope. None of this applies to the unbeliever. None of this can provide any comfort to them if they are unwilling to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a serious thing. It's not a done deal for anyone without faith that is necessary for salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning.